Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning. Yes, it's actually quite a nice day today, Kim. It is. Um, it's not as freezing as it was <laughs> No, not as freezing but... as it was, yes. It was amazing, actually. I know it's it's bad. It's an Australian habit to talk about the weather uh, because the weather can kill you. Um, but actually, in Melbourne yesterday, it was cold all day. Yes, it was. And I think as well, we're not really prepared for it. You know how we we don't have proper glazing, we don't have proper cooling, <laughs> we just... <laughs> we just wing it. Yeah, we just wing it. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Anyway, good morning everybody. This is Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. We have got quite a few things, tasty morsels for today. Yes. Yes. Um, what have you been doing this week? Anything exciting? No. No. <laughs> Well, uh, later on in the program, I'll give you a little report on something that I did. I took a bullet for you all, and I went off to the uh, uh, social economic uh, conference that was on at the Hyatt. Um, that's why I knew it was cold all day, because every time I went out of the building, I suddenly realised there was weather, because when you're inside a big uh, building uh, like that, uh, it's all so beautifully hermetically sealed. But anyway, there were lots of things going on there that uh, I think it was a uh, was put together by uh, Melbourne University, uh, the Melbourne Institute, and uh, the oh, that's Australian right, because we got that great pen last year. That's right, that's right, and the uh, and it was all about uh, 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 what is it, S- society and economics in a time of uncertainty. Yeah, I love that word, uncertainty. You know, as if all the people who are living on the streets or all the other people in the world have got certainty or they have a certainty that they are going to be cold tonight. I thought as well it could mean in a time when, you know, of Brexit or of the UK elections where we can't make people vote the way that we want them to. Yeah, well, that was mentioned. (laughs) (laughs) But I must say it was mentioned by one of the Labourites, so that was pretty interesting. Mm. Anyway, I've got a few things to say about that from um, my point of view, and we might get a few things out of it for the program as well, which is interesting. Uh, But uh, we're going to continue on with uh, what happened in Stick Together. If you were listening to Stick Together just before, uh, there was a a little bit from uh, Jim Stanford. Uh, Jim Stanford is the uh, director of uh, the Centre for Future Work and he was talking at, as you, if you were listening, <laughs> if you were still awake, uh, was uh, 
they were talking about um, penalty rates, what the penalty rate cuts mean. What does penalty rates mean to workers in Australia? And what it was uh, designed, the cuts <clears throat> were designed to, uh, how they were designed to enhance uh, the employer position and, in fact, the position of Australia in general, apparently. Uh, goddamn workers and their needs for food on the table, etc., etc. Uh, but uh, as he pointed out, that uh, the problem with cutting penalty rates is that uh, people can't go shopping, which is a really – there's no such thing as trickle-down effect. It, it has been shown that trickle-down mm. effect is just a load of cod's wallet. Anyway, I uh, decided uh, – I have to say I unilaterally decided that uh, we might actually hear a little bit more from the people on that uh, day when they were talking about penalty rates. We're going to have a little bit from Arthur Rorris, who is the uh, uh, Secretary of the Trades Hall along the southwest coast. Uh, he's got this great story about how young workers did it for themselves in Wollongong, and he talked about the interaction between the union and these young workers who weren't uh, union members. And this is where the incredible... Uh, uh, work that can be done as people re, are re-educated around the need for solidarity because uh, you can't go it alone. But anyway, he, he's got some really interesting to say, things to say. And then Keely Fitzpatrick from the uh, Young Workers Centre, she talks a little bit about what they are actually doing, what strategies they've got, and follow that by a little bit from... Um, Mark Moray, who is the Secretary of Unions New South Wales. That's, for those who don't know, that means uh, that's their version of uh, Trades Hall, uh, Victoria Trades Hall, Union New South Wales. Um, anyway, he talks about uh, what he thinks unions should do to remain relevant. Because in this time of uh, attacks on solidarity, workers' rights and uh, conditions, uh, you know, unions are actually more and more relevant. Yeah, well, you know, these cuts to penalty rates are actually the largest uh, since the Great Depression. Well, there you go. Yeah, and uh, we know what it did for the Great Depression. Actually, it's fascinating. Um, before we actually do that, I've just been reading George Johnson's "My Brother, uh, My Brother Jack," and uh, the other ones, which is uh, "Clean Straw for Nothing" and a cutload of clay. There were actually three. And there's this fascinating sequence in it about how people who were uh, out of work during the Depression were given the offcuts of uh, the leftovers from the, uh, the soldiers' clothing from the First World War. And in order to make sure that everybody knew that these people were Susso people, which is what they called them, they dyed them black so that everybody knew that these people were getting, in inverted commas, handouts. And then there was this incomprehensible line in the book where it says that the general belief was that the problems, economic problems, were the fault of the Sasso workers, the people who were after handouts. <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, time does not change anything. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30. 
featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5pm. For tickets, phone 96505699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. I'll try and reinforce, as opposed to repeat, the very good points of the previous speakers, but perhaps offer a bit of a different take on some of those issues from our recent experiences. Um, Much of my analysis here will be contained in a forthcoming paper, which I'll write when I get the time, (laughs) uh, which will be called The New Black a study in youth exploitation and the political economy of exclusion. So I was very interested to see some of the earlier statistics, both on the ground and in terms of the uh, uh, in terms of the uh, research base, as to exactly who is working in the periphery, as we once say, in the in the labour market. First things first. Ten years ago, um, during the actually a little bit more than ten years ago, during the work uh, uh, work choices onslaught and the Your Rights at Work campaign, uh, we got a um, we got a call from a young woman who was working at this restaurant uh, called uh, Chili's Restaurant in Wollongong, and it's gone into Your Rights at Work folklore since because she she was a young. Uh, uh, she was a young journalism student and uh, she wanted to interview me about a couple of matters of rights of work and the campaign, those things. Halfway through she said, so what would you say like if uh, you know, a young worker was only called in for 20 minutes at a time, told to go home? And I said, well, I'd like to blame work choices but you can't actually do that even under work choices. But it happens. Well, you know, I mean, I can't say that. Well, what about if people were asked to bring their own float of $100 and if anyone did a runner they had to take it out of their, their money back and I'd say well great one, I'll have to remember that but I don't really have any evidence of that and what, she says, well what if I do and I said, well you're my new best friend <laughs> and, she's, and I said, well who have you heard this from who has it happened to and she said, me Anyway, so we went and spoke with some of the other workers and sure enough, I mean, the story checked out and got worse. And we, she said, well, can you do something with this? And I said, my word, I can do something with this. Do you think the media will be interested? Of course they'll be interested and we're interested. But rather than me do this, I think it's going to have more effect if you do it. You're a young journalism student, right? Okay. Well, what if I can get you your first byline? She goes, you think so? I know so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'll be able to get... So do you reckon the Mercury would be able to do that? I said, I'd be very surprised if national media... And, of course, it went national. It, went, it became almost the personification of young work exploitation under work choices at the time, like the absolute you know, way in which it all hit. The point of the story is this. It's twofold. One is to say that work choices wasn't just about the written word. It was about the narrative, it was about the power imbalance, it was about the fear and the intimidation. This is what a lot of people didn't get, that 
it was about saying to employers, almost anything goes. And it went in tandem with the attack on unions because, of course, we defend workers. Or workers organise and defend themselves. So you attack workers, you bring in these new laws, but you also bring in the fear and the intimidation and that power shift. That is a very big part of it. Let's fast forward 10 years. And in a great irony, many of you would have read the uh, recent stories about youth exploitation in Wollongong, the young workers. One of the most, uh, one of the worst cases was the chain called the Outback Restaurant. Guess where Outback is? It's the exact same location as Chili's. Serious story. And it's also owned, like Chili's, by an American uh, uh, firm that's got all these franchises. So I'll get to that in a tick. So that was interesting in itself. But the second part of the point being the fear and the intimidation and what have you becomes very relevant here. Because a lot of the things that happen are not contained even in the current, you know, the current industrial relations laws. Work uh, Employers get away with them because the power imbalance is so great, the fear and intimidation leads the worker, and particularly a young worker, to believe that even if it doesn't sound right, it is what's happening and it is what I have to do if I need a job. The basis of my analysis is this, that the hubs of young worker exploitation have a name. They're called universities. And this is where... This is what took us by surprise. We, and I say collectively in the union movement, but particularly on the South Coast, because we've got high rates of youth unemployment, like many places in Victoria and elsewhere, we were looking for, in terms of uh, examples of exclusion, in terms of those that didn't get to university and elsewhere... And we were missing a very big part of the story. And that is that employers have worked out that where you get that transient occupational group, which is students who have to, particularly the way in which both universities and assistance to students has gone in the last 30, 40 years, they're a desperate, very easily exploitable group who will put up with almost anything just to get some money assuming they even get some allowances for their education, whatever else, and who are the most exploitable because even if they are lucky enough to be able to get some Centrelink or whatever else, they'll be able to do a deal in terms of a black economy. <coughs> and the two are happening at the same time. Now, if you take that as a business model, one of the many in wage theft, and you stick it into a regional community, you amplify its effect and uh, the incidences of exploitation. And it was only after the young people came forward to us, I have to say one, one young woman who's just absolutely stunned us, <laughs> Ashley Mounser, in her 20s, and she was able to do what we couldn't do for very much the reasons that Killian talks about. Who's going to come into a dingy office beside Wollongong train station with a middle-aged union official and report? I mean, they're not, just not going to do it. But what they did do is they responded to young Ashley, who put on this chat room, at the end of the, I wouldn't even know how to get into one of those things, and to say, you know what, I'm getting paid 15 cash in hand. Who else is getting that? Who else is getting that? She got some responses. She got some people who said 10, some 11. She got some people who said four-week trial with zero dollars. Four weeks. I'm not talking about a shift or a day or a week. Four weeks. 
And it just goes on and on. But what impressed us was that she did what we would call in the union movement mapping. She did a geographic map. That's what she did. It was an organising job from someone who didn't call themselves a unionist at that point, though I'm proud to say she's now a member of the union movement. But at that point, she just sort of said, OK, well, let's, let's get all this together. So she got 61 businesses. 61 within two-kilometre strip in Wollongong. Now, I'd have to say, if they were the ones that voluntarily came forward to report that cash in hand, the, under, you know, the underpayments, imagine how many there actually are. We thought to ourselves, look, who the hell is paying the award rates? You know, it, it was that bad. It was that bad. So I'll, I'll fast forward a few bits because I know we're a little bit sort of short on time as well. But uh, um, the, the interesting thing about her study was, was twofold. One, it was amazing that she actually got the list and that a lot of these young workers, not all of them, but most of them on that sheet of paper, provided their, their mobile numbers and their names, which means they were pissed off. That was, that was an important point to note, that that was too much. The second interesting thing about that study was that you had... Um, you almost had a consciousness amongst those workers of what underpayment was a fair underpayment, Right? They'd actually worked out that $15 cash in hand they could all live with. Anything below that was an absolute rip-off. They weren't happy with $15. They just accepted the fact that if they didn't you know, ex- uh, go and, and accept it at the, at the door, they wouldn't be getting through the front door to get a job. So this is just a case of, you know... And when we, when we uh, had a discussion with them, uh, they, their view was, well, what are you going to do? How can you change this? They don't have that view now, and I'll tell you why in a tick, but uh, they, at the, initially, that was their rationale. So the, the take-out of that for us was, hang on, so you've got young people who understand what's happening to them, they're prepared to cop it because they've got no choice, but they've also got a sense of working out a level that they're going to call the new black. <laughs> That's going to be their new level, and that was the most interesting part of the story, because they had worked out something that they were starting to organise around. Forget the fact that it wasn't the award (laughs) for a moment, but the important thing was they were prepared to collectivise. And that was the beginnings of it, right? So that was the positive. That was the positive take-out. The negative, though, is what a huge threat this is to the industrial relations system. Don't get me wrong, the penalty rate thing has to be at the focus, but it has to be in the context of wage theft, which is what we're all doing. If we just look at penalty rate as a rate, we're missing the story here. Because just like there used to be a threat to our currency, you know, the little sort of plates with the holes in them, you know, in the early days, and, you know, people worried about whether currency's going to survive. I mean, this is the Bitcoin option in industrial relations. This is a serious threat. You get 61 businesses in the centre of Wollongong doing this, That is a threat to our system. Who is going to be paying? Their competitors are going to be seriously thinking about switching business models from the the legal one to the illegal one because they know there are no penalties. Let's, Let's face it, there are no penalties. Unless the tax office gets in and whacks a few, the the ombudsman's already told us... By the way, the ombudsman recently 
Three months after the expose raided 80 businesses and we're told used all the notes from the students. They didn't have any intel at all. But putting that aside. But if you think about it, this whole black economy is threatening what we do. Right? And and, uh, I strongly suspect that the latest moves by the government on unpaid internships is an admission of failure, really, and that they know that there's going to be... They know they're going to get hammered and more and more and more of these cases are going to come up. And rather than respond to that threat, they're trying to legalise it. They're trying to go the other way and say, you know what, call it internship and away you go. We don't want to know. And that is a, that is a real danger. Moving along quickly. From what we saw, most of those issues are predominantly in hospitality. And this is the other part of that business model too. We were looking for the casual end. We honestly thought, well, this is going to be huge. You know, the, that was, that's always been the union movement's big fear, the increasing casualisation. You know, it's gone all the way back. The ones that are actually paying legally, they're not paying casual rates. They're employing them as full-time permanents. Uh, sorry, a permanent, uh, permanent full-time or permanent part-time. How can they do permanent full-time? Because they're using, we've now got two, three chains using zombie agreements. These are the agreements that were, before wet work choices, was dead, buried and cremated. Grilled was a great example in Victoria. But these guys aren't even worrying about the niceties. They're using pre-work choices agreements, which don't have, you can be employed as a part-time or as a permanent, and you could be working two hours a week. I kid you not. I mean, they are incredible, these agreements, able to totally override the award. And the only thing they have to be consistent with now are the national employment standards. But you need to have a current employee to challenge those. And you know how hard that is. So what we're actually looking at is employers who can skin those students even more by actually employing them as permanents. Hmm. They don't have to pay them casual rates. That's a great way to do it. And they're employing, what, two or three hours here, four hours there, eight hours there. No notion of any consistency in terms of expected sort of hours of work. Rosters, week in advance if you're lucky, and then up to 24 hours in urgent cases. Or, and the ombudsman's told us, no, that's actually legal. Sorry, guys, that's, that's legal. We're going to hopefully get to a test case on these things. So the second aspect is is this notion of casualisation and permanency. It's almost like quantum physics and, you know, <laughs> relativity. Once you get into that youth end, they do their sums and they say, we can actually rip them off more, not by having them as casuals, but having them as, uh, as, uh, as permanent workers. The next aspect, the... Um, uh, No, I won't go into that. It will take too long. <laughs> there was another aspect. Okay, so the the other aspect is is in terms of what happens with these students once they actually say something or do something. We know that the, well, the general reaction is well, they just get sacked, right? So this was our this was what we found with those students once they were contacted by the media. We just thought that'll go, you know, no one's going to want to talk. Once Ashley had spoken, I mean, once the media started ringing around, no one wanted to talk. Once Ashley spoke to them and said, look, I'm going to do it. You know, I've spent a bit of time putting the 61 together. What the heck, I'm going to do it, you know. They all opened up. And they said, all right, well, if you're going to do it, we'll do it. 
That's nice for us because it's a sense of, you know, collectivism and solidarity amongst them all. Once the media started ringing them and they said, well, what are you working, what are you getting, etc.? And they sort of said, so what were you supposed to be earning and getting and all that sort of stuff? They reverted back to being done over by what the boss had promised them, not in terms of the award. That whole notion and supporting what you said, that whole notion of being aware was just almost non-existent. And in fact, when we, when Unions New South Wales produced the, just a one-page sheet, one-page sheet, age, casual rate, etc. Right? And we started handing them out at orientation days. Everyone was, ta- everyone was taking them and coming back. You could tell just by looking in their eyes, they weren't getting that. They weren't getting that. But the other thing was, they thought it was a con. They thought, that can't be the legal rate. That's just what... No, 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 that is the legal rate. Well, that, you know, okay, but what if they can't afford to pay that? Most you know, This is the narrative, right? This is, the, what if they can't afford to pay that? But what are they hearing in the news? Business owners saying they can't afford to pay the legal rate. So it's almost like this is the guide. So another key theme of that paper, once I write it, will be that notion that the award has become a best practice guide in the hospitality end particularly in regional communities and mostly for young workers. So that, that's the other thing which is, which is incredible, really. Um, just on that point, can I make two, two quick points on, uh, on the aspect of aggregate demand, which was the other more so technical term, I guess, in terms of people's money in their pockets. And this is the undercurrent, and it's not new, the accord itself. You know, when Labor got in in 1982, was it? 82, 83? It was a key part of that document. It was there in black and white that there needs to be a shift, right, from wages to profit. And that was based on what a lot of the business leaders had been saying up until that point, which they called a real wage overhang, that somehow there was a natural order and balance between wages and profits, labour and capital, and they... Put a fulcrum, and that fulcrum, I think, from memory, was 1971, I think they used the base year. Other times they used 66, 67. And they used this notion that, well, it's just gone so far towards labour, it's got to come back. That policy, or the accord, and other policies, were deliberately aimed to redressing that to drive investment and labour. So this notion now about, you know, sort of driving, you know, jobs and employment through putting, taking money out of workers' pockets and back to business is not new. Mm. It's actually got a history itself. And one of the suggestions is maybe we ought to delve back and reverse it and talk about the real corporate or profit overhang. Uh, if we don't want to use those same base figures. So anyone, particularly the economists in the room, who may want to have a look at uh, some of those base years, that might be one way to do it. But that narrative about the, the bosses being being paid too much, sorry, the workers getting paid too much is, is, is the undercurrent with these. Let me quickly talk about outback. And this is my third and final point here without getting into some of the other aspects. It's one thing for young workers to be exploited, be ripped off. It is another use of taxpayers' money to prop up and finance a business model for the exploitation of young workers and the creation of this black economy. That is that 
final link, as we say in the picture, that draws it all together and why it is, particularly in hospitality, the employers were so keen for the traineeship option and moving away from the apprenticeships and then using it to justify why apprenticeships have dropped off. Oh, it's because we've got more traineeships. Oh, yeah, like this, like this. The young worker told us and backed up by two, three of her colleagues, they came in into a room, were signing traineeship contracts for three years. Some of them were law students becoming trainees in front of house operations at the Outback restaurant and signing those away. Luckily, the law students didn't sign. They actually started reading, I've got to say. They had 20 minutes in which there was mostly talk and they were told to sign. They didn't have time to read it because their shift started. And worse, they were not allowed to even take what they'd signed away. So they had no proof of anything and still have no proof of, of anything that they've signed. But that aspect, that's the worst. That's the worst because then you can sort of see how the training system itself reads smart and skilled. And yes, a lot of this happened before smart and skilled. It's true, but it's now gone into a in, into a new depth and a new world, really, where basically they're doing it at will. It's brazen. Uh, they're not. They're unapologetic about it. Even the government is saying they don't see a problem, even though the department tells us privately that they're going to move on the hospitality traineeships because it's becoming too much of a joke. Right? So that's what we've got. I'll leave it there, and apologies if I've got a little bit over the 15, but it's a, it's a fascinating area, um, and my commendation to everyone who works in that, in that field, because we've got 20,000 young people all looking for part-time work, or most of them, it's an obvious base for organising. And where we have affiliates already based there, in out like the NTU and most of the campuses, we're working with the campus-based unions. It's an opportunity to work with the student unions and others to maybe look at new forms of, of organising, based, of course, with membership within the union movement. But we need to face facts, and that is that it's not just the emerging business models that we need to look at, but we also need to look at our own. Right? and learn from some of these things about new ways of actually organising so that we're more effective. Thank you. Hi, I'm... No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. Testing, <laughs> testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And I'm Ida. And you're listening to 3C... Yes, you are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And we've got Tony Smith on the line. G'day, Tony. How are you? Hello, Annie and Kim. Good morning. Good morning. Now, the reason for why we're talking to Tony is because Tony can give us a little bit of information about the Westgate Tunnel Project. You were at the directions hearing yes, uh, earlier this week, weren't you? Yeah, on Wednesday, um, where they laid out the, the timetable and started filling our email boxes with all kinds of dates that things have to happen by and uh, leading up to the, the main hearings, which begin on the... 14th. Now, though, this is related to the fact that the, uh, what is it, the environmental... Yeah. The environmental effects statement has to be, is, uh, has been uh, on public exhibit for a few weeks and we've had, I think, six weeks to comment on it and then they, they are the hearings, the um, assessment and uh, uh, the IAC, the uh, Inquiry and Assessment Committee um, make their uh, they run hearings for several weeks which adds on top of the evidence the the whole 
the environmental effects statement is a is ten thousand pages in umpteen volumes prepared by uh, the official proponent, which is the nowadays the um, Western Distributor Authority, even though they've changed the name of the project to the Westgate Tunnel. Um, so the Western Distributor Authority are, are proposing this project as as an arm of government uh, and submitting all this evidence and then others, including particularly the, the councils affected um, and interested public and so on, uh, respond to that and some of, uh, I think, 500 plus responses and 125 of whom have requested to be heard at the hearings, which will run over uh, about another six, five to six weeks from the 14th of August. So what is the plan for people who haven't been following all the details? Uh, the plan currently, there's two aspects. There's one that's just a further widening of the the west gate between um, the Ring Road merge and the Williamstown Road, and then at William, beyond Williamstown Road, they're intending to take off this tunnel and run it go under um, Yarraville, which is to, to address the old the truck pollution problem which is a very real problem and we're all concerned about and and but then come out to the surface at, and, and over the uh, over the Maribyrnong over above Footscray Road as parallel road sky roads above Footscray Road wow. above Mooney Ponds Creek and in poor traffic into the city um, which the city of Melbourne don't want. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, because I was reading that uh, one of the councillors had put forward a, a report saying that it was going to cause peak hour traffic-like conditions for practically the entire day. Yeah, yes, certainly City of Melbourne. Uh, well, City of Melbourne have a major investment in the work they've already done and the work they have planned for that area there. Um, some of my backgrounds uh, being lifelong involved with Mooney Ponds Creek and issues and... Uh, they um, certainly they were looking at the Lower Mooney Ponds Creek as providing a connecting um, green spine through a number of brownfield development sites. Um, Arden McCauley keeps getting mentioned, and Eagate and others that are back in through that industrial. That, that's area. North Melbourne, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because McCauley is basically that uh, major thoroughfare that comes up through. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which is quite interesting, isn't it? Because so, so this is a trans, this is a private public partnership concept with yeah, Transurban. Yeah, the, the, the proposal um, came in um, as a, an unsolicited uh, project from Transurban, as as was the city. Well, the currently still in progress um, city link widening uh, on the or Tullamarine City with Link and Tullamarine three-way widening, which was a another uh, Transurban unsolicited offer in which Transurban finds some money from their bankers and in turn get an extension to the period of tolling and in this in the case of the Western Distributor get, uh, or the Westgate Tunnel, get more roads in which to place tolls. Um, but they also extends the period of tolling even out on the Monash and places like that by maybe another dozen years. Um, seems to be a very expensive way of paying for something, even if the project was necessary and good. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of questions being asked from all kinds of directions, which uh, and, and 
the despite the fact that they know more about planning than probably anybody else in the state, the the IAC has its terms of reference, which kind of what does IAC stand for? The the Inquiry and Assessment Committee yeah, go are on. the ones conducting these hearings. There's five panel members who are all people with highly relevant and lots of experience in in, in planning issues, uh, and, and and they but they're kind of told to stay within their terms of reference, which are assessing not the whole impact but limited aspects of the impact. Now, I mean, you've you've, you've already put uh, put forward one of the uh, I- issues of how tightly managed this is bureaucratically in that uh, 10,000 pages uh, public response within a couple of weeks. (laughs) Yeah, well, within six weeks, but it's still an incredibly short time. If you you have an organisation that that operates on a monthly meeting cycle, it is really hard (laughs) to to, to kind of get through draft to response. I mean, the councils have been terrifically active once the once the thing was out, but um, yeah, everything is set up to make it easy for the proponent and difficult for those who are, have concerns. Uh, uh, what are some more of the concerns? Because you were talking about that terrible pollution in Yarraville, um, but are there other issues as well? Uh, the well, the, the the biggest issue of all is, is locking in the car dependence for travel into the inner city when the inner city has no room for more cars. Uh, the inner city is trying to find space for better pedestrian and better public transport access because they're just much more efficient users of road space than, than cars are. Cars are an extreme... Uh, pa- Single-occupant passenger cars are an extremely inefficient use of road space. So, yeah, it's, it's fine having delivery vehicles and emergency services and all, that, all those other users need priority. So the real problem is... In a city the size of Melbourne, you shouldn't be locking in car dependence. And this project is just about, uh, and not not so much outer suburbs. I mean, outer suburbs have got a massive road deficit too. But you you shouldn't be locking in uh, in for travel into the core of the city. You shouldn't be locking in car dependence because there's nowhere to put the cars when they get there. Now this business, uh, yeah, but this business about. Uh uh, solving traffic problems, which is one of the things well, that is co- often put forward as a reason for why you want to have more of these intricate road systems. As you yeah, said, they, it was they a, never work. Yeah, and there was an unsolicited plan put forward by Transurban. Yeah. I we, I actually went to uh, Transurban. Uh, uh, presentation where I must admit it, it freaked me out because it's like oh transurban we don't need government anymore you know transurban's there to swiftly bring in their policy statements so that it's interesting they've kind of they've turned this into not being they're, they're hiding transurban at the moment in, in a sense that it's, uh, that it's it's become this western distributor authority which is an arm of government and it's basically inherited a lot of the people on the Oh, right. I was going to bring that up because they're talking about cars, but actually, is it like the East-West Link where actually it was there for uh, big trucks? And is that what's going on? Well, it's partly that, but the trucking lobby aren't all that happy about it either because the the current proposal from Transurban is to set much higher tolls for trucks. So the likelihood is that the trucks won't use it um, because there's a whole lot of... Um, post 
badgering by these various parties. The, the truck, the trucking people, the freight people definitely want improved access across town. They want to, look, they, they, they want to save, you know, a dollar where they can save a dollar. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Are there alternatives? Um, I mean, because, well, you know... The, put... the point is, the proposals aren't going to achieve what they set out to achieve. I mean, that's oh, the right. thing being demonstrated. I mean, and, and they never do. Adding more roads increases traffic congestion because all it does is provide an invitation to people, commuters, to stay in their cars um, and people who don't... You know, to people to drive into the inner city. Whereas well, driving... you know, they what the the, the the you know its argument is uh, that the Westgate Tunnel will get trucks off residential streets. That uh, the um, that uh, they will they'll get rid of the pollution. They'll it will do all these kinds of things. That's what they're saying. No, the point is the point is that's the objectives that have put, exist for the project. But when you actually look at what they are building and what their own data says in the EES, uh, it fails all those things. The, oh, the, my goodness. Yeah, that's where the problem is. I mean, so the doesn't... trucks will try and get around these holes? Is that yeah. what the data's showing? Yeah. Well, the, the, the trucking lobby, the trucking groups that are speaking on it are, are basically saying, well, look, you, you, we, we want the project, but we want it with, without the tolls. We well, of course. <laughs> but their, their, their excuse is the big trucks shouldn't have to slow down um, because of... I mean, they don't have to slow down. They're, they're automatically told by you know, a, an electronic... Yeah, by electronic so that's, thing. That's kind of spurious. Um, yeah. But that's the uh, one of the arguments they're using for saying, oh, no tolls on trucks so that we don't have to slow down. And also they're saying that it's going to be uh, uh, paid for by increased tolls on yeah. other toll roads. Yeah, well, it's here, including the Monash, yeah. So the people out east are going to be paying for it for an extra 12 years uh, to pay for, for this. Well, to pay Transurban, really, basically. Is there anyone that this benefits aside from Transurban? Um, in, in, You're scratching the, your the head. The trucking companies would like to think it'll shave a few minutes off their time. Uh, and... and you know, but most of us are struggling to find anybody other than Transurban and their bankers who, and so on, and the people playing in the, the money end of things. And what about? Well, obviously, uh, there are going to be construction workers. There will be about they reckon about six thousand construction workers well, will be involved. This is another interesting question. I, I I spoke to a guy from the project at Geelong a couple of weeks ago, and he basically said, look. Half our job is about, or he, he, he took it as his responsibility was equally about creating jobs as it was about providing good, good infrastructure. Uh, but the, prob- the other problem is this: we are now got so much infrastructure building going on that it's become we've become the most expensive place in the world to build infrastructure because we can't get enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, isn't that hysterical? That's so mm. funny. Plus, we uh, could yeah. be building pub- those construction workers could be building public transport and so on yeah. instead. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, 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 now, there's just before we let you go because I know you've got lots of things to do. And yeah. uh, thanks, Tony, for talking to us. Yeah. How much dislocation is, is going to be experienced by local communities over there? Well, if it if it is built, there'll be five years of building it to start with, and and that will be. Um, you know, 
quite a bit. The, 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 they, they aren't going into any residential areas, so we don't have people losing their homes, other than there might be a few above the tunnel who are a bit worried about how, you know, whether there's ground effects and things like that. Uh, they're basically going through commercial land um, and uh, and a little bit of parkland. Um, they, they, they're saying they're giving back as much parkland as they're taking, but um, you know, that's, you, you, you believe that when you see it, and they'll certainly be occupying some during construction. Right. Okay. And I, th- I heard maybe I could be wrong that there'll be increased traffic in the north while they're building this. Uh, there'll be increased traffic. Uh, well, it's, it's the point is they can't. They promise to take to, to close some roads to trucks after it's built. Um, but that's a fair way out. And, mm. uh, you know, the people who are suffering from these and have been suffering for a long time, and there's been some groups in the West that have been campaigning very on the inner West and they're very much about the trucks for a long time. And they've done a terrific yeah, they job. Have. And they, they like, they're, the, they're, they're the only ones. They kind of want a psychological win. They want something done. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, so there are, some, there are some advocacy groups who will be... who, who, who are kind of giving it support with reservations. Yeah, so what you're really saying is it's going to cost a lot of money and it's not going to solve the problem. What did your submission actually say? Because you put in a submission. Uh, yeah, we, I tried to talk... Well, I've talked about the questionable motivations and processes of Transurban, and, uh, uh, but but also about uh, just the, the, the general logistics and the, the kind of Jane Jacobs moment, but I won't, I won't try and unpack that now because we are... <laughs> And you've got better things to do with your time. <laughs> well, no, it's not better. I just trains don't wait sometimes. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Tony, for talking to us. Okay, thank thanks, you. Tony. Bring down the covenant. Bring it to its heel. The seventh annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the twelfth, from ten a.m. to six p.m. The book fair showcases more than forty stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking, and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free, and we also provide free childcare at the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the twelfth, from ten a.m. to six p.m. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and that was Tony Smith. He was talking to us about the Westgate Tunnel Project uh, which has obviously been taking uh, a lot of time uh, in the minds of uh, well, Colin Colleen Hartland, who is a great advocate for the West, mm. and she's got a website, uh, the Toll Road Won't Work dot org dot au. <laughs> if you want to find out more information, she's obviously not mincing her words. <laughs> yes, exactly. I had a real estate agent try and convince me to that it would be good to move to the West because they were building this. Tunnel, and now I'm I'm kind of glad that I didn't. Not, I mean, the West is a, is a wonderful oh, place. The, but the was, idea that you'd be able to get to yeah, yeah, fly, be, to, yeah, your, be fly work. to work and all this. It's like, no, it's going to be terrible for the next five years and probably after. Yeah, well, of course. But anyway, uh, obviously there's this thing going on. But I, I think this thing about transurban is the most uh, worrisome uh, elements. Uh, this idea that... Uh, 
We didn't actually get on to the one thing that I was, uh, one thing that had cropped up in conversation with Tony, which was that, uh, did you know that in on the transurban systems, they don't like to have bus a bus lane? And the reason for why they don't like to have a bus lane is that when uh, the cars are in gridlock, uh, buses will fly past and that will cause a sense of resentment and envy for <laughs> people who have had to pay <laughs> a toll. Yeah, they could have just gotten the bus and <laughs> just flying right back. Isn't that hysterical? How ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, the idea that uh, you can have a uh, corporation – uh, acting as the policy maker, the uh, the iron in the policy for governments is a very worrisome type of. Um, it, that's not lobbying. That's actually creating whole whole arrangements of uh, policy frameworks. Mm, and I think another thing that is part of it is that you know people aren't just getting in their cars because it's a lot of fun sitting in gridlock every morning but they've made public transport so expensive and they've talked about this themselves when they increase the fares yet again that it is there's not this huge incentive for people to actually take public transport because driving is you know especially in the inner city, um, would cost, you know, just maybe a little bit more. It's starting to rival what it would cost uh, to get on public transport. And you know how reliable public transport is in Melbourne. Well, it's fascinating. Uh, There hasn't been very much more discussion about the uh, train system stopping completely. Yes. I think people were just gobsmacked. Yeah, I assume they have a very, very old computer system that they're terrified to touch. <laughs> no, someone was putting uh, putting forward the notion that, uh, and I have heard this before, that the uh, system itself is uh, part of a 19th century uh, underlaying. Like they, they, I mean, all all of the systems, but there's there's a lot of uh, complicated elements to a system of this sort, and the level of maintenance that is required may is is, is high, very high, and uh, I, I presume, and I'm not talking with great authority, but that it was put to me that uh, if a signal goes down. The system is compromised and the things, the outcomes could be uh, disastrous. Mm. And so the system itself has fail-safes which closes itself down until it's dealt with. Um, And ultimately, you know, having uh, train crashes, etc., you know, that's not a good thing. That's not a good look. So um, this is probably what happened. You know, when they say, oh, it was a computer failure – there may be actually more to it than that. And mm. that's why it's so interesting that we actually haven't heard anything, any more real details about what actually happened. And I was just wondering if anybody had got more real details because that was a hugely significant event that happened. Yeah, how long was it held up for? 45 minutes or something like that? No, no, I think it mo- mm-hmm. it closed down for quite a long time. I mean, people, no, it, it, it the system stopped. And people had to go and use public uh, train trams and stuff. And trams are inadequate. Uh, it, uh, there's not enough of them. Mm. 
there's not enough trams to deal with that level of... But anyway, if you were a planner and a policymaker, that would have been a really interesting example for you to look at potential outcomes and how you could change your system. Very similar in a funny kind of a way, in an awful way, to the the, uh, thing that the event at the uh, Twin Towers had the effect on uh, data collection in relation to all those uh, aeroplanes that stopped uh, flying because of the uh, worry about terrorist attacks. They got collected all this amazing information around uh, the level of pollution that is caused by aeroplanes. Wonderful. They're really, really expensive to the planet. Just, Just saying, just saying. Anyway, this is the week... It was. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when influenced by the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country experience, big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull announced a new Home Affairs Super Security Ministry. Much to the excitement of Attorney General George Brandy's brain and Minister for Injustice Michael Canem, who haven't got that much left to do. But it makes sense to copy Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country's successful anti-terrorist structure, given they've only had about one terrorist event a week. After all, we believe in world's best practice, and to ensure we get our fair share of terrorist events, what greater guarantee than putting the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, in charge of the show? so-called because it's there for show, and Pete displayed his mastery of the portfolio when asked to explain home affairs. It's someone screwing someone they shouldn't at home. Uh, Are you sure of that, Pete? Absolutely, no doubt. See, the security bit is taking all precautions to make sure you don't get sprung. Oh, well, thanks for the explanation, Pete. Pleasure. And to reinforce that protection, Malcolm has promised we'll have a heavily armed train killer and a heavily armed train killer trained, sorry, a police person on every corner. What comfort, what a feeling of security, seeing a trained killer and a trained killer trained police person in full military regalia. And if that isn't reassuring enough, don't forget they'll be under the auspices, the orders of that giant mind, Pete. Last week we mentioned how encouraging the idea Trubler was he should enter the space race because we need a new planet to flee as climate refugees to replace the one we've stuffed up. And given home affairs, train killers on every corner and Peter Duffer, bring on the new planet, I say. Oh, and those silly suggestions, based, I suspect, on jealousy, that Pete's appointment was a political capitulation to the arch-conservatives of the Conservatives, wrong. Pete was asked that very question the other morning. Is this a political appointment? No, he said. So that puts that to bed. Obviously, modesty prevented Pete from adding it was based on talent, although minor point. When is the appointment of a minister not a political appointment? On protecting the population, protecting the good citizens of Minneapolis and of Minnesota generally, their dedicated force, sorry, police force, known affectionately as the Minnesotas, locked in friendly, fun combat with other forces of law and order across the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, to achieve the highest kill rate for the year. 
Although in the case of the true blue Aussie woman who made the big, big mistake of reporting a possible sexual assault, we can only assume the minor shooters in the light at that time of day mistook her for a black. Mention the need to find a new planet, but it seems it may not be necessary, as that in-depth so-called think tank, the Institute of Public Very Private Affairs, has claimed more than half the caring business class party MPs do not believe in climate change, still argue the science is not settled. Well, a mere 99.99 recurring percent of climate scientists, if not 100%, believe the science is settled. So scepticism, agnosticism, denial make scientific sense. Supported by the little bald-headed bloke who used to be big supremo back in those dark ages, addressing the US Arms Studies Centre last week, presumably for his usual very, very substantial fee, direct quote, I have become uh, increasingly more of a, uh, a sceptic on, uh, on climate change. I, I was never a uh, paid-up enthusiast. Uh, gee, we never noticed that. But given his starting point, we are stunned to hear there's space for the increasingly more of a sceptic bit. On space, Tiny's former boss, Peter, with an A credit, with credibility, whose regular Lord Rupert of Wapping columns never stop praising the man who tossed Tiny and her out, says climate change remains Malcolm's kryptonite, bringing us back to another planet. Sensibly, Peter's solution is leave the climate, energy and related matters like the end of planet Earth to the market, which will sort it all out. Better to lose the planet than to hurt the economy, given that lot also don't believe in a non-fossil economy. That solution to all problems, the market. The market. What better example than solving the problem of low power prices by ensuring they're anything but? Absolutely unnecessary. Lord Rupert of Wapping headline, Power Price Shock. Lord Rupert's compassion for the thousands, the story read, who can't afford the utility bills, but the only shock would be if people could afford their power bills. The benefits of competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, as promised by former state supremo Jeff Footinmouth and his economic guru Alan Stockdill, when they assured us how much better off we'd be when they handed our bloated hand of the inefficient public sector to their mates, Sorry, sorry, to the efficient hand of the private sector. Yet one report from the Major Energy Users Association and the Business Profits Council, great believers in the market, in competition, argues a major reason for those power price shocks is declining competition. Good heavens, what went wrong? Because these people all extol the virtues of competition before indulging in the dog-eat-dog -dog bit of the greatest little economic order of them all, which is the essence of the greatest little. Why are the practitioners so surprised when the essence turns up its inevitable results? After all, don't they claim to know all about these things? One of the brilliant practitioners who knows all about these things, there's no question about US of Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor's popularity, as boasted by the ever-modest Donald himself, with this latest poll showing the, le the lowest favourable and the highest not favourable of any US of Big Supremo at this stage of the Supremo cycle. Very good, very good. I am the best Big Supremo ever at everything, everything. I'm the best worst, and I'm the worst best. Good. Very, very good. 
No need for satire, really. As the polls show Donald's popularity plummeting towards zero or zilch or zip or whatever our US old friends mangle, Donald said the figure was not bad, leaving us to ponder just what Donald might consider not so good. And Donald and our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect duly bash up the workers assure us the US of will honour its commitment to take over True Blue Aussie's responsibility for no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people. Only just not yet. And as we mentioned last week, the no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people have been whooping it up and popping the corks on Manus and Nauru at the exciting news True Blue Aussie looks certain to get on the UN of the US of the UN of the World Human Rights Council, showing how a human rights record is the dominant criteria for membership. Well, Liberty, Freedom and Democracy Love and Saudi chaired the Human Rights Committee. Not sure it still does or not, but what better proof do we need to confirm its credibility on human rights? Credibility as Peter with an A credibility and that lot who know science is not settled on climate change crap equally know the Human Rights Committee's impeccable record on human rights is settled. And anyway, the whooping it up illegal boat people will enjoy human rights in the US of Donald and Julie say so or, or simply die, whichever comes first. On that, former Socialist Party big supremo little Kebby Rod for the workers said when he said no boat person would ever, ever set foot on True Blue Aussie soil, he meant no boat person would ever, ever set foot on True Blue Aussie soil in the next 12 months, revealing our urgent need for a poly-speak handbook. Where's George Orwell when we need him? Apropos of not much at all, a Caroline Springs mother has complained and threatened legal action over a Mr. Munchie's sponge biscuity thingy from a manufacturer called Galaxy Food Products she bought for her 10-year-old daughter, whose first and presumably only bite revealed a mouse in the thingy, which was, by the way, dead. Presumably failed to survive the process bit, although it may have just nibbled at the salt, sugar and fat rubbish it was cooked in and died of unnatural causes. But, well, it's not often we get a bonus, more than we paid for, so why complain, we asked her. Well, it should have been listed on the ingredients. My child's a vegetarian. OK, fair enough. And in the truth in advertising department... Well, that's all they exist for. Watching the footy sound down, there's this ad for one of the big two competition policy supermarkets with a bloke at the checkout and his family keep turning up with new products and then one rushes back because she forgot something and he shrugs his shoulders at the people in the queue and they enjoy the joke with him. At which point, of course, the ad loses all credibility. Who ever heard of anyone enjoying being stuck in a supermarket queue, particularly since they've abolished the small number of items queue to force us to do the work they used to pay staff to do? Finally, on community-minded altruism, top marks to the Minerals Profits Council for showing it cares about nothing but the public purse. The super-efficient, lean-mean private companies, as usual, expressing concern for the bloated, inefficient hand of the public purse. Get rid of crippling royalties, state royalties on the publicly owned products the industry extracts from Mother Earth and the states would get a lot more in GST revenue. No royalties on mining companies and the states would be better off. What altruism. 
isn't it reassuring to know there's an industry out there which puts our interests first? Good morning. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarrah Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warabak, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangrook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming, one street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug free event a 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and uh, I just want to say that I went to this thing on the last few days and uh, Josh Frydenberg, who, uh, that's how you say it, isn't it? That's right, he is our Minister for Energy and, no, environment and energy. But he got up and said that he was the Minister for Energy and and Environment. And it was fascinating because what he was really saying, ultimately, this is what I took out from it, was that, you know, our environment is actually about the cost of electricity. (laughs) And the next thing was that the federal government, and he said this in a just open-handed way, that the federal government's going to spend all their time pressuring the state governments to hand over control of resources so that they can develop, 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 and that equals fracking. Hmm. <laughs> he did. He actually said that. Well, you're going to have to have an Adani-style campaign against that. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Quite extraordinary stuff. I've seen those. Um, did you see the... Uh, naked bollards again, those, you know, the anti-terrorist bollards. That they the, the squares of concrete? Yes. the um, That very... are, are popping up everywhere like mushrooms. Yes, yes, exactly. Very, very ugly mushrooms. They've, you know how the Lord Mayor Robert Doyle was uh, sort of celebrating how people had decorated them? Well, I came back this week and I'm sure there were, you know, there's articles in the newspapers. Uh, the ones uh, near... Uh, Near where I hang out, on the corner where I hang out, and yeah. um, you know, up near the library. Oh, uh, actually, Burke Street. Burke Street, yeah, yeah. Um, handing out leaflets and you know, just general troublemaking. Yeah. Uh, the ones that said "Stop Adani" where it all been whitewashed. Oh, whitewashed. One. Everybody whitewashed. <laughs> well, I don't know what you do to get paint off, but they weren't red anymore. Uh, fantastic, isn't it? Oh, I know. We want to have politically. Correct um, bollards, anti-terrorist bollards, mm. quite clearly. And I mean that in the most uh, cynical way when I say co- uh, a politically correct. I mean right-wing, quite clearly. That's what politically correct now means. It means right-wing. Mm. Mm. Capitalist class only. <laughs> Yarra City Council present Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017 from the 13th to the 23rd of July. Celebrating 40 years since Melbourne's first punk gig, Bakehouse hosts Why Punk discussing its existence. Catch the All Ages shows featuring Philly and Boessa at the Turn Up or Ms Risk for Groovers in the High Tea. Head to Bar Open for a show every night of the festival. 
or catch the smooth grooves of the meltdown. For participating venues and tickets, visit leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. A 3CR supporter. My mate, Vivian, has given me a really nice piece of uh, conversation by Arnold Sable. He is a author. Um, if you're a book reader, you would be aware of that. And he's also a refugee advocate. And uh, in Sydney last week, he sat down and gave a talk. And uh, he makes it personal because, of course, Arnold Sable's people came to Australia as refugees. Mm. So here we go. Let's hear what Arnold's got to say. It's important uh, to, to bear this in mind that it is a global issue. In fact, in contextualising it and contextualising the discussion tonight, I, I'd say it's, it's helpful to look at three levels, the global, the national and the local, when it comes to looking at the issues of asylum seekers. Now, globally, we're living in extraordinary times. I mean, the latest figures are something like 66 million uh, displaced peoples. I mean, they include uh, many million that are internally displaced. Uh, They include something like 22, 23 million refugees. They include uh, one group that that I feel very, very deeply about, the 10 million stateless people, 10 million people that are regarded as nowhere people. Um, and uh, today, going on the uh, uh, UNHCR uh, website, I learned the astonishing fact that there are 28,300 displaced, new displaced peoples every day and 24 per minute. So as we sit here, there will probably be several thousand more. I mean, that is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, and... Um, and, and just look at Mosul and, and, and what's probably turning out to be a kind of very victory, uh, leaving behind uh, a totally destroyed city. Uh, and, and yet again, you see a phenomenon that's becoming all too common in the world today. And what about a future where arguably we're going to see millions of climate change uh, refugees? So then, if you look at the national level, our level, What's happening here in Australia? Well, first you've got to go offshore, and you have the 2,000 or so uh, asylum seekers on their route and that island. I mean, what has happened to those people is a shocking abuse of human rights. It's shocking. Um, you know, we, we have driven people mad. Uh, we have driven <coughs> people to utter despair. Um, they are being used as pawns in a brutal political game and uh, there's still no real end in sight. Uh, and uh, those of us that have been in contact with people uh, uh, on, in offshore detention, you know, you, you feel sometimes extremely helpless, but sometimes very hopeful too, and maybe that will come out in, in the course of the discussion. In, in terms of the the wonderful relationships that have been developed despite the deliberate policy of keeping people out of sight and out of mind. Uh, you've got the 24,000 or more uh, 
Jana will, will know more about those statistics that are uh, in Australia in various on various forms of temporary protection visas, pension visas, um, in limbo. Uh, uh, some of whom have got to quickly fill out uh, their applications um, uh, for a visa status uh, before October uh, and are in a panic because of a sudden shifts, policy shifts that have occurred recently in that regard. Um, you know, you've got issues like the new citizenship, proposed citizenship test, and the level six English requirements. Uh, I taught Michael English for a while. Level three was good enough to communicate. Level six is a level that many, many Australians would struggle with. Um, so there are many, many issues when it comes to uh, uh, looking at the national scene. Uh, but I, I guess the turning point was the Tampa affair. You know, it, I think Tamp- if you have to look at a watershed moment, I think it was Tampa when you had those 438 rescued asylum seekers on, a, uh, on, on the Norwegian freighter offshore of Christmas Island and uh, no journalist, no uh, um, uh, photographer uh, was allowed anywhere near the boats. So all you saw was a red hull on the horizon and telephoto lens shots of hordes of people on the deck. It was, it was deliberate. A horde inspires fear. Of a horde um, is, the, is uh, an act... To present a horde visually is, is an act of dispossession in itself and dehumanisation. And finally, the local level. And I think the local level is very relevant to the speakers we have here uh, today, as well as the other levels. Um, To me, that's where the hope lies. In fact, the good news stories have happened on a local level. Uh, There are amazing initiatives that have been taking place in, especially certain um, uh, municipal in regards to municipal councils that have worked very, very hard to foster a sense of harmony in their communities and and taken up uh, the gaps uh, that have been caused by federal policy. I mean, Refugee Week two weeks ago, uh, I was privileged to take part in a number of events and some of the initiatives that have taken place at the local level, the city of Darabin, the city of Yarra, um, uh, and and so forth, uh, 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 fabulous and you've also got the NGOs, the asylum seeker, the extraordinary asylum seeker resource centre, uh, and a whole range of of, uh, of uh, refugee advocacy groups that are doing terrific work. And you have the unsung heroes, the people that are going out daily to uh, Maribyrnong Detention Centre, Port Meadows Detention Centre, uh, and 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 acting uh, acting out, um, you know. Uh, what the Greeks called philoxenia, as opposed to xenophobia. Xenophobia, fear of the stranger. Philoxenia, a lesser-known word, and not known in English, unfortunately, means friend of the stranger or love of the stranger. Uh, yes? I'd just ask, like to ask Arnold a question about media. I think a lot of this has come through very toxic media. Some really terrible, almost criminal things have been said in the media, whipping people up who never had an opinion about refugees before, but now they do. And Australians from the 50s had become very receptive to, to refugees. I remember that growing up here. But Arnold, you recently had an article in the Saturday paper. It was written by Beruz Bushani, and your name was down the bottom that you'd helped him. 
Could you tell us a bit more about this philogenia, where you're trying to develop that feeling of love for the other, which that article definitely had, and Beru's Bishani and other people like that are able to speak to. Well, look, I'd like to acknowledge Janet Galbraith, who's here, who's uh, very closely aligned uh, with people on Manus Island and, and uh, knows, uh, uh, knows them personally and directly. It's done extraordinary work in this. Look, you know, a number of years ago, uh, well, back in the, you know, Mark, you know, uh, back in 2001, 2002, post Tampa, I found myself speaking a lot at, at, at public forums on asylum seekers and I remember one occasion I, I was speaking to it was a huge audience it was some conference on radio presenters I think and, uh, and, and, I, and I gave a very kind of preaching to the converted talk and um, at the end you know I got great applause but before the end about six people walked out and, and I knew I was the cause of them walking out and I went away and I thought, well, look, you know, it's easy to preach and convert it, you know. I had, and this is what we've been discussing. So I re- I, as chance would have it, I was to address a, a rotary luncheon a few weeks in a, a few weeks' time. I thought, well, this, is, this will be a bit more of a challenging audience. And to cut a long story short, I began by saying, look, in the 1840s, uh, an American journalist and social reformer was travelling in Ireland and noticed that the people's lips were green. And they were green because they were eating grass. And they were eating grass because of the potato blight. Came back to potatoes and food and there was nothing else to eat. And out of a population of 8 million in the immediate uh, uh, time frame, over a million died and over a million got onto boats. Uh, Within uh, two decades, uh, once the political... uh, conflicts kicked in and the, and the uh, uh, people being displaced from the land by absentee landlords often in England, uh, over 3 million out of 8 million took off for New World countries and in the second half of the 20th century, the 15 million people that left Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England still comprised the largest diaspora of modern times. So you were getting on an com- inclusive basis and it was remarkable, and, 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 and the one other thing I'll say briefly is that as a even in, in the humble column, right, I've noticed that the, the, the most effective and powerful way is to begin with a story. A story is neutral, and it, it, it pulls the rug from underneath people's feet. And I've noticed that all those columns I wrote beginning with stories, then leading into the argument... What happens is they get cut out, and they they they, they are used in school school uh, rooms, and, and they're used in all kinds of uh, forums, and uh, you know people, and, and it engages people, and it shifts their perception. Look at the the issue of English. I wrote a, a piece when Pauline Hanson was was uh, you know a dozen years ago talking about uh, not allowing people that didn't speak English into the country. And, and I just began about you know the death of my mum, and, and, and just the final week in her life, I stopped at the hospital door and heard her. You know, I saw this beautiful sight: an 80-year-old teenage nurse combing her hair, right, 
as she sat in the wheelchair. And, uh, and then, and then in that moment, they were like one, you know. And then I listened to my mum, she was singing. She always loved singing, she was singing. You must remember this, a kiss is but a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. So fundamental things apply as time goes by, right? So that's the beginning of the story. No argument there, you know. And, and then I went on to, to begin talking about how, uh, when she came to this country, she, 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 she worked in factories, she gave as much as she received. Um, and she didn't know a word of English when she arrived. But she knew five other languages. Right? And, she, and, so, you know, and, and right up until then, I think I would have had most people with me. And so, you know, uh, and so, and then, then you find out that one of the ways she learned English, and she learned it quickly, because the more languages you know, the, quick, the quicker you learn a new language usually, uh, was by going to the movies. And she saw Casablanca many times and loved singing those songs. You know, my Yiddish mum singing with Irish eyes are smiling. <laughs> it's one of the great memories of my childhood. So, you know, that, now, but there's another issue I want to bring up very briefly here, and that's something else. When we're talking about, you know, writing stories about asylum seekers, about refugees, um, there's an issue, another issue comes up, and sometimes it can disempower the the. Uh, the asylum seeker, disempower the refugee. In fact, Beirut Bashani doesn't even like being called an asylum, a seeker of asylum or asylum seeker. He, he says, look, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, I'm an artist. And so there's an issue here. And so another thing I've become acutely aware of in this issue, and maybe Robert, you can uh, comment on this, is that uh, uh, you know, uh, part of what we're on about is empowering the people we're speaking on the behalf of and moving aside. One of the great things about Behrouz Bashani is that he's now a go-to man. Yeah. And he began being a person that just gave out information, but now he, he, can, you know, he can write on his own terms and get published in a major... But that was a struggle. That took a, a process. Janet uh, and I are very acutely aware of that process he went through uh, to become the spokesperson or one of the spokespeople uh, for, for those on Manus Island. So, you know, this is a very, very important issue that often we're speaking about people rather than empowering them to have a, have a platform. Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarra Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warabak, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangook Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming. One street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug free event a 3CR supporter. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am till 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Bring down the
Well, we've come to the end of the show, Kim. Yeah, that was quick. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Uh, Solidarity Breakfast coming again, another one in the can. Uh, the uh, reason for why I've been pr- pressing and pushing the Smith Street Dreaming is that it's actually on today. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, that's right. It actually came, finally. And it's a great lineup of musicians. There were there were two quite stunningly different stories that came from Indigenous Australia, its connection to mainstream Australia today. Uh, yesterday. There was one, the uh, poor young boy who was knocked down and killed. Uh, the uh, perpetrator of that action was uh, in Alice Springs, was... Uh, uh, acquitted of acquitted manslaughter. of manslaughter, which caused uh, many people to come out in the streets in Alice Springs. And uh, the other that was a much more positive thing, which was the uh, land rights uh, uh, adjudication that uh, indeed the uh, Aboriginal people in uh, uh, which in Queensland, a land, a part of uh, Queensland, I think what, what we call Queensland, was uh, it was a um, dispute between them and Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto has been uh, doing uh, mining there for a considerable amount of time and there's a dispute over royalties and uh, indeed the uh, Aboriginal group was uh, clearly given the... Uh, uh, the, the statement was made that, yes, they did have uh, complete land rights and that they had been gypped. So uh, that's going to cost Rio Tinto a fair amount of money. Now, this is a very good thing, I'd have to say. Mm. I would say. Anyway, we're going to go out with a song from Radio Birdman. There's this, uh, as, as I was telling Kim, uh, Radio Birdman was a seminal Australian uh, band in the 1970s. And there's a film on at the moment at uh, the Novak. So if you're interested, go along and watch it. Uh, it's, it tells you about a time in Australian political and music history, which uh, people forget. Australians are really good at forgetting really important parts of living memory. And this is a very important part of, of Australian history because uh, there was the uh, very Vegemite period of uh, Menzies and this was part of the Radio Birdman was uh, part of creating a whole Australian music mystique, and they did every. It was a very do-it-yourself, hands-on sort of affair, and they were so they were such a, a huge. They had such a huge effect that they created their own uh, camp followers. And even when they couldn't play, find places to, uh, you know, they'd find a, ba- a place to play and then the uh, pub owner would come along and say, oh, no, and pull out all the uh, all the plugs because it was too loud. Anyway, uh, so we're going to go out with uh, Aloha, Steve and Dano. They, they do, they've got this uh, way of uh, infusing this... Uh, Surfs, uh, surfs up sort of drumming uh, arrangement and wall of sound stuff, mm. which, uh, as one of the uh, uh, band members uh, said, you know, that when it was said that uh, there's uh, a, a, a lot of uh, Australian um, uh, rock sound in Radio Birdman, and he said, I beg to differ, I think there's a lot of Radio Birdman in the Australian rock sound.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.